Our proceedings here over the past two days have illustrated for us how the Book of Elania is one of the minor glories of Irish learning, um, as so described by Ori Brannock. Um, as an illuminated manuscript, however, uh, as a physical object, an artifact, uh, the Book of Ivania is also a great testament to memory and commemoration and the familial and ecclesiastical ambition of its patron, Archbishop Morharthic O'Kelly. Um, in keeping with the ornamentation of other great compendium manuscripts uh, of the late Middle Ages, uh, Ivania illumination uh, follows the tradition of the insular scriptorium in terms of style, form and colour choices. Um, of the 33 illuminations present in the manuscript, ribbon and wire initials predominate. Francoise Henri describes these initial types as deriving from the small initials of the Book of Kells and related manuscripts via the scribal workshops of the 12th century, and she states, Nevertheless, some of these books are still remarkably attractive and keep something in their enigmatic meanderings of the enchanting qualities of the text pages of the Book of Kells. In fact, the repertoire, Beasts and Vegetables, does not depart radically from that of the earlier manuscripts, but the treatment is more fluid with less deliberate sharpness. The illumination in the Book of Emania uh, offers six ribbon and 17 wire initials. Ribbon initial uh, is composed of the body of an elongated animal, while the wire or knotted wire type is a letter formed of a thick black line and generally though not always knotted in several places and ending in one or more animal head terminals. Um, both the ribbon and wire initials are composed of zoomorphic or geometric interlaced designs. Of the seven initials in the geometric category, sharp angular or um, excuse me, sharp angular knotted letters are favoured over curved designs. Whereas in the zoomorphic category, there are three ribbon and twelve wire initials. Unlike other contemporary manuscripts, such as the Book of Ballymote, which we have heard about uh, today um, uh, from various speakers, and the Book of the White Earl, which incorporate multiple creatures and sometimes multiple species into any individual initial, uh, the Ivania initials offer only a single animal in each case. Marginalia, uh, though popular in contemporary English and European manuscripts, such as the Bodleian Library's Dice Pierce Plyman, um, occurs infrequently in the Gaelic-Irish corpus. In the Book of Ilania, the marginalia appear as four fully formed animals, characterised by a reasonable degree of variety and attention to detail. And some of the stronger draftsmanship may be found amongst them. Um, the altogether peculiar creature on folio 50 recto is sporting a chunky pie, uh, terminating in sharp talons, piscine tail, fin-like wing, and the highly stylized head of a quadruped, um, bearing a rather cross expression, I always think. Um, his body is now faded red, surrounded by a web of yellow interlacing, uh, some of which passes over his extremities. Um, the four-legged creature then on folio 49 recto is the finest illustration in the category. He has been rendered in a highly stylized fashion with deep, long curves for the back and chest and sharp angular joints, but generally uh, retains the appropriate canine proportions. He too is a faded red color surrounded by yellow interlacing, which binds his limbs in certain places. The other two comprise a fish on folio 45 verso and a mythical beast on folio 111 recto. 
The creatures are carefully drawn, the fish marked with scales of diagonal stripes and spots, and a mythical creature, to whom we shall return a bit later, uh, is rendered through a series of woven ribbons in various colour. Three further fully formed animals also occur in the Book of Ivania within the text as turns in the path. Uh, turns in the path function as an aid to the reader, drawing attention to a particular word or phrase, preventing a word or two from spilling over onto a new folio or a new choir of text, for instance. Um, two examples, a bird and an angel, appear on folio 12 recto and one on a canine on folio 49 recto. The bird is outlined in black ink and bears striped wings, large claws and a curved beak. The heavily patterned appearance of the feathers gives the impression uh, of a chain mail or a scaly coat. Um, and damage to the lower section of the page has largely obscured the angel, but his curly hair, rather stern eyebrows, um, and the tops of his wings are still visible. Final creature is a stylized dog in a marching pose, characterized by a dreadfully emaciated waist, great rounded thighs, and a most extravagant tail, comprising red and yellow interlaced ribbons, which extend out behind him for the full width of the column of text, and then rise up through the central margin. The intimacy of this text-drawing relationship in the Book of Ivania is quite pronounced. In numerous places, the text and historian-aided initials are so well modelled to one another, as one cannot but assume that they were execu uh, executed by the same figure. The historian-aided initials on folia uh, 50 recto and 52 verso demonstrate this quite well. Um, each of these is particularly adapted, uh, well adapted rather, uh, to its surrounding text the margin of which is dictated by the often highly irregular contours of the initials. Uh, if we suppose for a moment that the scribe of uh, the one on the left, as you see it there, folio 50 recto, um, if he left a blank for the later artist rather than a square or other regular shape, and you might have noticed that in a couple of the slides from previous um, speakers, um, he, if, um, rather than doing so, he chose to write two indented columns of text, followed by two with further indentations, the next two gradually returning towards the left margin, and finally the cont uh, continuation of the text starting at the normal left margin. Um, and such a cumbersome blank seems rather unlikely. Um, alternatively, the artist could have had first control of the page, although to select an area halfway down uh, the page for such a peculiarly shaped drawing seems equally unlikely and uh, a touch selfish, I think you'll agree, um, as not only is one column of text thrown offline, but so too are the others to its right. Um, such a close relationship between the scribe and artist has demonstrated here that it would be unfeasible if the two were not one and the same. Um, and combined with the rather utilitarian quality of the draftsmanship in most cases, um, it would be reasonable to suggest, as I have done before, that scribes in Gaelic Ireland um, often shared the role of illuminator, and so I like to call them scribe artists. Examining the scribal divisions, um, as traced by William O'Sullivan, as we've heard, in relation to the illumination, reveals discrepancies in the division of the role of the illuminator. Um, there are scribal divisions which contain no illumination of any kind, those belongings to, to D1, 2, 4, 5, and 6. Um, and in direct contrast with these Spartan sections are scribe artist Philip McGowan, um, who appears to have been rather fond of drawing, as his pages are heavily ornamented. 
Um, despite writing only a fraction of the textual contents, McGowan is responsible for nearly half of the illumination. Um, aside from sheer quantity, the illuminations belonging to his pages also represent the finest in the manuscript, which corresponds well with William O'Sullivan's description of him as having written the finest and most calligraphical hand. Um, as a scribe artist, Fela McGowan had a discernible style and employs differing but related uh, excuse me, approaches to his ribbon and wire initials. The ribbon initials and marginalia, of which there are three geometric and five zoomorphic, are each composed of thick ribbons or bodies coloured in red. The geometric uh, examples contrast well with one another, the first a nicely rounded form on folio 51 verso, and the second sharply angular on folio 54 recto but both sporting dense, soft interlacing, both inside and around the outside of the initial. The zoomorphic initials are characterized by fine drawing and attention to detail. Each of the beasts is essentially the same animal in a differing pose. One is long, thin, and partially curled back on himself, folio 48 recto. One is outstretched, 49 recto. One curled around completely on himself, 48 verso. One curled at the hips in a contortionist fashion, 52 verso, and the other winged, 50 recto. Each has a definite, well-formed snout with a highly stylized nose formed of a swirl. The eyes are rounded, though slightly pinched and set in a teardrop-shaped socket with a curled edge and ears projecting sharply upward from the socket. Each wears a collar at the neck, is depicted with chunky swirls for the thighs and shoulders, sharp three-digit claws, and is rendered with a double outline, surrounded by a mass of yellow interlacing. The wire initials, of which there are four of the geometric and zoomorphic styles, are all knotted at least once, uh, painted and double-wired. The animal head terminals are very similar in nature to those of their ribbon counterparts. This use of the double wire is actually especially antiquated in style, um, an example may be found in the late 11th or early 12th century Psalter of St. Camille in Dublin UCD Francisca Manuscript A1, whereas later manuscripts tend to use only a single wire. Of the remaining scribe artists uh, involved in the Book of Ionia, um, Olaf Cushing uh, is the most accomplished. Now, this might seem somewhat surprising in light of William O'Sullivan and Aureus McAllister's assessments, uh, which, as we heard yesterday and today, uh, described him as penning very mediocre initials in an inelegant hand. Um, I should say, though, that in my study, I have only concerned myself with initials that are, in fact, historiated, um, rather than flourished or highlighted with pigment, which I have ignored entirely. Um, as such, contrary to O'Sullivan's comments, I count only one historiated initial as deriving from Cushing's, um, and that's that on folio 39 recto. Uh, his work consists predominantly of marginal imagery, um, and it's to his hand that the bird, fish, and angel belong. Um, the wire initial shares a certain exactness with the marginal drawings in terms of composition of the wire itself, though the animal head terminal is left perhaps wanting. Um, rather than describing him as mediocre, um, I would share in Puerto Macon's uh, assessment that I actually find him to be fairly conscientious, um, as demonstrated in the straight parallel, parallel edges of the initials, careful feathering of the bird and patterning of the fish. 
scribe artist uh, G1, by contrast, uh, responsible for six wire initials, is decidedly a mediocre painter. Um, his initials present no particular pattern other than the quality of the drawing, which is loose and offers little attention to detail. Um, the animal head terminals are, as you can see here, largely uh, indeterminable. Um, G2, on the other hand, uh, is a much more elegant artist uh, than his genealogical counterpart. Uh, only one initial attributed to him, um, although damage has resulted in the partial obscuring of the head of the initial. What is visible is well formed with tight lines and interlace that follows uh, through accurately. And then the final two illuminations, folio 103 recto and 111 recto, belong to the hand of scribe artist D3. The two are markedly different. One, a geometric initial formed of a thick uncolored ribbon, uh, which does seem to me uh, somewhat unfinished, um, and the other, a mythical creature. The former is, un former is unremarkable, and the latter a tight and uh, rather handsome design. Uh, Rory O'Higgin uh, spoke to us this morning about heroes and ancestors in the textual contents of the manuscript, both in the surviving contents and also likely in those that have been lost. Um, and here we learned of a clear, very clear interest in genealogy, and in particular that of the O'Kelly family. Um, and this concern for lineage is not restricted merely to the textual contents um, and is very heavily reinforced in the decorative scheme. Um, the relatively modest illumination of the Book of Emania uh, ensures that those tracts which are ornamented are immediately distinguished from those forced to do without. And of the 28 historiated initials or marginalia present, 15 are associated with tracts on pedigree and kingship, with the remainder distributed across a variety of historical and devotional tracts. Uh, so it is in the context of ancestry, genealogy, and legend uh, that we return to our mythical marginal creature on folio 111 recto. Tucked away in the top left-hand corner of the page, uh, this illumination bears little resemblance to the other marginalia or historiated initials in the manuscript. First, the creature is marked out from the others in terms of its colouring. Throughout the manuscript, colouring is quite simple, uh, using only bright red and yellow. This creature, however, is distinguished by the dark green ribbons uh, forming his body, his dark red face, and the brown-grey brown tail and fore and hind legs. Second, he is distinguished in terms of form. Um, at first glance, this creature is almost rem reminiscent of a, of a rocking horse, uh, I think, um, given the mane and the colourful appearance. However, a closer look suggests the face and muzzle of a canine rather than an equine creature, and the tail seems a little bit too bushy for a horse. This combination of muzzle, mane, and bushy tail suggests an altogether different interpretation of the image, one very much in keeping with the pronounced genealogical concerns promoted throughout, that of an Enfield, the O'Kelly family emblem. The Enfield is a rarely used animal in the heraldic menagerie. Um, it is described uh, as an imaginary hybrid comprising the head of a fox, the chest of a greyhound, talons of an eagle, body of a lion, and hind legs and tail of a wolf. So, rather composite. Um, bearing this description in mind, the individual details of the Imana beast gradually become a little bit clearer. Unfortunately, not all the details are visible. The feet are cut off, 
uh, in the image and thus it is unclear whether or not he has the, the talents um, required. Um, and the green ribbons and stylization of the beast obscure the chest somewhat. The canine snout, on the other hand, is perfectly suited to a creature with a fox's head, and the mane which fits well in with the lion's body, and a long curl tail appropriate for a wolf. The choice of colour is also quite interesting, as while green pigment does occur in some of the other more lav lavishly ornamented late medieval manuscripts, um, such as uh, National Library G2-3, which we've heard about, and the Books of Ballymote and the Book of the White Earl, um, it does not appear as frequently as red or yellow. N.J.A. Williams, however, describes the Enfield as always coloured green. Thus, it seems reasonable to conclude that this creature is a, depicted, a depiction of the heraldic Enfield, treated in the same insular manner as the historiated initials and marginalia. The incorporation of the Enfield into the decorative scheme of the Book of Emania, a manuscript which has already been demonstrated to favour genealogical texts, um, is indicative of a patron intent on display of family and indeed personal glory. Um, and I think you'll agree that this fits in quite well with Bernadette Cunningham's comments yesterday in relation to uh, status and display. Um, in his account of the history of heraldry in Ireland, John Barry argues that the adoption of the feudal practice of heraldry in the wake of the Anglo-Norman invasion was met with resistance by the Gaelic chieftains. The earliest extant Gaelic seal bearing heraldry, for instance, is that of Rory Kennedy, uh, attached to the treaty he agree agreed with the Earl of Ormond in 1356. It is unlikely, therefore, that the O'Kelly family wore their Enfield as a heraldic device much before the 14th or 15th centuries, although the Enfield had, by this stage, long established a, spe a special significance for the family. Referring to the death of Tidemore O'Kelly at the Battle of Clontarf, John O'Donovan relates, There is a tradition among the O'Kellys of Hymeny that they have borne as their crest an Enfield since the time of this Tidemore, from a belief that this fabulous animal issued forth from the, from the sea at the Battle of Clontarf to protect the body of O'Kelly from the Danes till rescued by his followers. Prior to official use as an, as an armorial, the Enfield was thus a tribal symbol. And Canon French describes such symbols as a heraldry of the ancient Irish family's own, and thought of them alongside tribal badges and colours by which their various tribes and kingdoms were distinguished from one another. There are examples elsewhere of such totems or talismans br bridging the divide between family, family symbol and armorial. The red hand of the O'Neills, the cat of the O'Kanes and the O'Rourkes and the robin of the O'Sullivans are all distinctive symbols of their respective families, which were then later incorporated into their heraldic badges. The association of the Enails family of Ulster and the Red Hand, for example, arose according to tradition when Harriman, son of Milesius, the first O'Neill king of Ireland, arranged for a dispute with a rival king to be settled on the outcome of a boat race, the winner being the first to touch dry land. Falling behind his competitor and desperate to emerge the victor, Harriman sacrificed his own hand, cutting it off with a sword, tossing it ashore, thereby founding the royal O'Neill line. Centuries later, while asserting their rights to kingship of Ulster in the later Middle Ages, the O'Neill family adopted the title Rexel Tony and the device of the Red Hand as their emblem, while simultaneously associating themselves with Conor McNassa, the Sagas of Armagh, and the Warriors of Ulster. In 1364, the device of the Red Hand was placed upon the seal of Eirar O'Neill, King of Ulster, 
and afterwards became a permanent feature of their memorial bearings and their dependent chieftains and may be observed on the seal of Hugh O'Neill, King of Ulster, dated uh, to 1590. The origins of the O'Kelly Enfield Association are perhaps a little bit more obscure. Um, the use of the Enfield in heraldry is, as I said, quite rare. Um, John Vinecombe, in his catalogue of fictitious and symbolic creatures in art, uh, provides only a very brief description and refers to it only in relation to the O'Kelly family. And in his article of Beasts and Banners, the origin of the heraldic Enfield, uh, Williams records only three occasions in which the device is employed. Emblem of the O'Kellys, the coat of arms of the London Borough of Enfield, and the arms of William, Marion, Mann and Son of Enfield, North Carolina. That was granted in June 1964. Um, it is Williams' belief that the Enfield refers to the Irish word onku, which has two meanings. Uh, the first, albeit a secondary meaning, refers to a banner or standard, and the other bearing, excuse me, and one often bearing the onku symbol. In the secondary and primary interpretation, on refers to water and ku to hound or leopard, as described by Osborne Bergen in his translation of a poem recording the recapture of Enniskillen in 1595, thus making water hound when combined. And the onku is generally portrayed as an aquatic animal. Such a beast would certainly be suitable for a fantastical creature bursting from the sea to intervene in the Battle of Clontarf. An inventory of venomous beasts, including toads, scorpions, dragons, and snakes, in Kogori uh, uh, Gael Regalo, however, suggests the Yonku is half mammalian and half reptilian. The Yonku is a foul creature, one which prompted the poet Maelmura Bacchus McGrath no, uh, to write, We care not to regard it. So dreaded an armature it hath, a haughty, powerful monster, it paced, mightily venomous, furious, arrogant, sharp-clawed. The descriptions of these two creatures are quite disparate. Uh, one a mammal, uh, if perhaps a little unusual in appearance, uh, capable of swimming, and the other a repugnant and fearsome creepy-crawly. Surely these two beasts cannot be one and the same. Um, and such a loathsome beast, one too ugly for the eye to bear, uh, also seems a somewhat curious choice of a family totem, um, unless they were fighting uh, for control of the, of the Iron Throne, perhaps. Um, but whatever the origins, uh, developed from the Anku or otherwise, the enduring nature of the Enfield as emblem of the O'Kelly family is amply demonstrated in its continued use right up until the 20th century. Um, Enfields are depicted as part of the O'Kelly arms uh, above a tower house and flanked by a pair of lions rampant on some plaques from Kilconnell Abbey in County Galway. Um, and thought to, these are thought to have been part of much larger uh, wall tombs or wall plaques. Um, and more recently, the Kelly plaque in St. Mary's Church of Ireland Church in Drogheda um, bears an Enfield and carries the inscription erected by his wife to the sacred and loving memory of Arthur Dillon Dennis Kennedy, the O'Kelly, uh, excuse me, the O'Kelly, uh, Major 34th Border Regiment died 14th March 1936. Um, Archbishop O'Kelly was not the only member of his family to demonstrate uh, an interest in literary patronage, um, as we have heard today. Um, William O'Kelly, uh, son of Duncan Wimach, um, the grand uncle of Archbishop Mar as we heard from Michael Hoyne, uh, 
Naomi Holhoin, uh, this morning, um, made something of a splash uh, during the winter of, 19, uh, of 1351, uh, when he hosted his grand Christmas gathering and invited all of the Irish men of learning and entertainment, which was recorded in the Annals of Clan McNoy. Um, such lavish expenditure on great gatherings of bards and minstrels was not unheard of in the circles of hospitality. And poets were often invited by the great lords to stay with them over the festive periods, in particular at Christmas and Easter. Um, and in one particular instance, Catherine Sims records the chieftain of Fanad as deferring his own funeral in order to ensure that the visiting poets were not deprived of their Easter feast. Um, a most accommodating host indeed. Um, for their services, as both entertainers and eyewitnesses then, the poets could uh, expect to be rewarded handsomely, um, and the patron in return, while perhaps poorer financially, uh, as we heard this morning, um, could expect rewards uh, in terms of praise of inverse. Um, Michal spoke to us at length uh, about the praise poetry which was written in honour of William. He told us of the Lair Gahintach, um, written by the monster poet Geoffrey Fionn O'Dolly, um, speaking not merely of the lavish party, but of the extraordinary thought and consideration um, not to mention hinting at the obvious expense incurred, lavished upon its preparation. He spoke to us of the, the temporary town um, with an avenue of peaked hostels, which was required to accommodate the guests along with the new castle for the Lord himself. Um, he spoke to us of the town planning and the different streets used for various professions, a uh, separate street appointed for the musicians, for example, one for the chroniclers. Um, and a spacious avenue of white houses for the bardic companies and jugglers. Um, the poem thus presents William as the paradigm of hospitality, a generous and thoughtful patron of the arts, and a wealthy and powerful figure capable of financing such an affair. Um, William's illustrious history and political prowess, um, not to mention his irresistible charm and good looks, um, doubtlessly presented a fine model for the O'Kelly family, um, one celebrated by the Irish bards as a prince of unbounded munificence. A formidable character, William brought, uh, fought and defeated his brother, Tig, in an effort to assume the chieftaincy of Imarna, which he held for 35 years before resigning in favour of his son. His repute and true generosity towards the learned classes then earned him a praise filled obit recorded by the Annals of the Four Master for the year 1381 as William, the son of Donna Munnach O'Kelly, Lord of Hymani, a man of the greatest character, character, worth and renown of his own tribe, the man who had given a general invitation of hospitality to the schools of Ireland and given them all of their demands, died a very old man after the victory of Penance and his son Malachlan assumed his place. Now, as you, um, okay, I'll just put that one on instead. Um, as you will all no doubt have noted, um, what is curious in terms of the illumination is the manner in which attention is drawn to the entry on William in the Book of Imana, for it is this section which has been ornamented with the Enfield. Um, afforded the most unusual and in that sense arguably the most eye-catching of the illuminations in the manuscript. Um, even in its current much shortened state, having suffered, as we have heard repeatedly, uh, substantial losses, the Book of Imana is quite a tome. Um, at the time of writing, therefore, the scribes and patron would have had a substantial bulk of parchment on which to paint the family device, and yet they chose this particular location 
right up in the corner of a folio, um, and a dashed off folio at that, uh, as we heard uh, this morning. Um, and this was surely not the fault of accident. Uh, associating both the family emblem and the model familial member in this fashion was surely deliberate. And if so, a bold statement, one which is perfectly at home in a manuscript designed to illuminate the prestige of the O'Kelly clan through both text and image. And the illumination and textual contents clearly suggest a patron concerned with the tangible embodiment of lineage and prestige. And in this endeavour, Archbishop O'Kelly was not alone. And around this time, other members of the family were similarly commissioning artistic projects, instilled with a sense of history and longevity. This is evident in particular in the funerary monument commissioned by Muraklin, uh, son of William and uncle of Archbishop O'Kelly, uh, who died in 1401, and his wife Benula O'Connor died in 1403, uh, which is in Abinach Moy in County Galway. Um, originally a Cistercian house, Abinach Moy was founded by Cahal Crobzag O'Connor in 1190. By the turn of the 15th century, however, the stringent uh, Cistercian rule had relaxed somewhat, and new benefactors in the form of Merlachlan O'Kelly, chief of Ivania, and other lay patrons arrived and altered the decorative fabric of the abbey. Um, the O'Kelly tomb, uh, located in the north wall of the chancel, is poorly preserved due to having been partially dismantled for display in the Great Exhibition of 1851. It's now also covered by scaffolding, unhelpfully. Um, although in its original, its original form is known through fragments on site um, and through a late 18th century illustration. The tomb-borne inscription, which is most unusual in the context of surviving Irish funerary uh, monuments from the medieval era, it read, Melachlan O'Kelly, High King of Ivania, i.e. from Carr to Graham, died at the height of his rule and his powers. He had been brought before his death to the monastery of Nakmoy, and he is buried there in his own stone tomb, having left the family to succeed him. A small number of inscribed epitaphs from the period have been identified in Ireland. However, these are largely concerned with members of the Anglo-Irish community. Exceptions to this can be found in a mid-12th century grave slab at Glendalough, thought to be belonging to Mirhartha Colhan, um, Lord of Eli O'Fogarty, County Tipperary, who died in 1151, um, and the other, the effigy of Thomas in Gerpoint Abbey. Therefore, while it was perhaps not unique at the time to have an inscription honouring a chieftain, although it is the sole surviving example today, um, Susan Lee Fry, in her assessment of epitaphs, suggests that it must have been at least highly unusual. The tomb is of interest for two reasons, its design and its location in Abbey Nahmoy. First, in terms of design, the tomb is comprised of a pointed cusped arch with plaques at the base, surrounded by a large program of wall painting, which also incorporates antiquated motifs. The arch is ornamented in the Romanesque style, with chevron detailing and zoomorphic head terminals. Rachel Moss describes these inclusions as tying the tomb firmly into the history of the Abbey Church through a visual link between it and the 12th century chevron ornamented windows of the Abbey. Furthermore, Moss points to a number of architectural panels in Abbey Nachmoy, bearing an interlaced pattern, a motif which Colm Hurahan identified as an obvious statement of identity given its insular heritage. This contemporary appropriation of antiquated motifs 
is paralleled in the elimination of the Book of Emonia. Second, in terms of its location, Abinoch Moy was originally an O'Connor Foundation. Merlachlan O'Kelly was not the first of his family to have been buried there. In 1295, Donal O'Kelly, uh, Lord of Emonia, was interred in the abbey in the habit of a monk. Donal's burial in the habit of a monk suggests, therefore, that there was no such O'Kelly family tomb in existence at Nachmoy in which he could be buried, understandable in an abbey founded by a rival family. Just over a century later, Malachlan O'Kelly commissions a grand, large funeral monument and placed it in a prominent position in the abbey. The deliberate act of establishing a tomb in a new location would have constituted a significant political statement. It was quite typical in late medieval Ireland for a number of members of the same family to be interred together and for more than one body to be laid to rest in the one grave. The Annals of the Four Master record for the year 1398, for example, the obituary of Marabain of Farrell, a worthy heir to the lordship of Annally, who was interred in Lara in the tomb of his father and grandfather. Similarly, in 1403, Pike, son of Cahal O'Connor, was buried, according to the Annals of Connacht, in the tomb of his grandfather, Cahal, son of Donal. And two years later, Pike MacDermott, king of Moilurg, was taken to be buried in the tomb of his ancestors. The conscious selection of an alternative location for burial rather than one's ancestral tomb or burial site would therefore have attracted some attention. And choosing specifically the north wall of the chancel for the position of the O'Kelly tomb is also very telling in terms of political ambition. Intramural interment on the northern or gospel side of the church occupied a prestigious position. Donald Carroll, King of Oriel, who provided the initial endowment of lands for Malachant Abbey, the first mm -hmm. abbey established by Continental Order in Ireland, is thought to have been buried at Malachant in a tomb in the arched recess on the north side of the altar. Therefore, this became the standard position for burial of founding patrons and bishops in both Cistercian houses and those of other orders in Ireland. Tomaso Kelly, Bishop of Clumfert, who died in 1263, arranged for the construction of his tomb near the north side of the high altar of the Dominican friary in Athenry, County Galway, and in doing so, he caused all the scattered bones to be removed. This removal of previously buried bodies further suggests that the esteemed nature of the northern side, given Thomas was willing to disinter corpses in order to establish his own tomb. Selecting the north side of the chancel of Abinachmoy for the tomb was therefore a potent political statement on behalf of Malachlan O'Kelly. The choice of location reflects both a break with and reassertion of traditions and ancient rites and deeds. Um, in commemorating himself in Abinachmoy, he broke with ancestral tradition, as this was not the territorial church of the O'Kelly family. Finally, within that site, Merlachlan selected the position traditionally held to be of greatest prestige and prominence in which to place his own tomb. And this was a deliberate and visually powerful act, um, a statement of status and territory. Um, and albeit in a very different medium, um, the so-called Cavanagh uh, Charter Horn of Barris County Carlow um, was employed in a similar territorial function. And this 12th century ceremonial drinking cup, composed of an elephant ivory horn, was traditionally a symbol of the kingship of Leinster. The Kavanaghs that occupied the kingship of Leinster since Dermot Conkin had assumed power in the mid-11th century. The Anglo-Norman invasion and subsequent McMurray surge in power relieved them of their position. It is surely no coincidence, therefore, that its refurbishment, including the, the placement on brass mites by the Kavanaghs during the 15th century, 
corresponded with a time of renewed claims by the family to the overlordship of Leinster, which was at the time largely controlled by families from Wexford. Um, and this symbolic prop as a, a marker of territory could also be used on the marking of ecclesiastical territory in both the 14th, uh, in both the 14th century but also earlier. Um, Croziers and relics were employed in what Karen Overby terms the performance of territorial authority. Their association with legacy and lineage is described in hagiography, and um, the now lost uh, Baco Iaso or Staff of Jesus, for example is recorded in the late 9th century life of St. Patrick as being passed from Jesus to St. Patrick through an intermediary on a Mediterranean island. And likewise, Overby argues that the O'Connor patronage of the 12th century St. Monkin's Shrine or the Lamanahan Shrine was targeted to secure a particular geographically strategic alliance during the O'Connor expansion eastward from the Kingdom of Connacht. The unusual shape of the shrine is equated to a portable version of an outdoor founder burial monument, inferring that it may have been designed to process around the border of the patron's territory as a public demonstration of power, territorial ownership and great wealth. Furthermore, it is suggested that the later addition of figures to the shrine was a deliberate attempt to create a historical relationship between Connacht and Breffna through the conflation of two hagiographical traditions. St. Monchon of Lamanahan and St. Monchon of Mohill, and then re-recording the origin of the shrine as Mohill. And similarly, Reinald O'Floyne noted that no crozier has ever been recorded as having been found with a burial. And this suggests that insular crook-headed croziers were never regarded as the property of any individual cleric, um, and therefore they were seen, they deemed to be hereditary symbols of office. And in placing inscriptions on their croziers, such as on the Kells or the St. Dimpner's croziers, patrons were therefore attempting to situate themselves historically, forging a permanent and material link with both the sainted ancestor and the future, future spiritual descendants, and in a sense, as he says, fixing monastic history. Visually, later refurbishments to croziers and reliquaries reinforced this legacy and sense of ecclesiastical territory. And the crozier of Tom McNoise, for example, was refurbished during the 14th century to incorporate a full-length depiction of a bishop mitred and holding a staff, framed by the head and cloak of the original drop. This bold incorporation and juxtaposition of old and new re-articulates the, symbol, the symbolic importance of the crozier as a marker of legacy and ecclesiastical territory. And, and this ecclesiastical use of props is of great significance, of course, to the patron, as Archbishop O'Kelly was an archbishop. And um, first, I mean, as an archbishop himself, he, the patron must have been aware of such ecclesiastical traditions. Um, and second, it was suggested by Bernadette yesterday that soon after the death of O'Kelly, the manuscript likely left Tuam and passed into the hands of his son, the, de the then Bishop of Clonfert. Um, and it is very tempting, therefore, to interpret the Book of Emonia as a symbol, a dual symbol of prestige and territory, both familial and ecclesiastical, drawn up by Mirhartha Kelly to rival the hereditary markers of office in forms of croziers and relics. Um, and this manuscript could, therefore, denote current holders of ecclesiastical office while simultaneously celebrating and preserving the Ocali name, and specifically that, of course, of the original patron. Um, 
Archbishop O'Kelly commissioned his manuscript in the midst of uh, an O'Kelly Renaissance. The family had recently re-emerged to the forefront of political, the political scene in Connacht and was systematically regaining control of lands surrounding their territory. Simultaneously, Archbishop O'Kelly was or orchestrating his own ecclesiastical territory, systematically appointing members of his own family, including his son, as we heard from uh, Nolligo Morila yesterday, to prominent monastic and diocesan offices. The Book of Ivania, filled with genealogies and marked with the family emblem, may thus be read as another piece in the puzzle. The choice of antiquated illumination and a book type recalling the great pre-conquest compendia echoes the political manipulation of the past by the O'Kelly family during the 14th and 15th centuries. Just as Mylachlan had selected a traditional location of prestige and outmoded motifs for his tomb, Archbishop O'Kelly chose traditional illumination and a traditional book type to enrich his great family manuscript with prestige and the strength of history, and thereby creating a memorial artifact.